podcast is created as a part of the Podcast Lab by India Film Project in association with Anchor by Spotify. You, me, films and the world is equal to this podcast. No, no, take two. You, me and just geeking about films is equal to this podcast you're listening to. This is Around the World in 8mm. I am Prakar Patidar and I talk films. In the last episode, remember I hinted that the film that we cover in this one is going to be one that makes you cry? Or so I was told. And that is why I prepared myself for an emotional ride. Why do we cry in films? Catharsis? Sure. It's probably because something in you or about you or your life or your experiences, something, anything resonates with what you're seeing on the screen. I remember when I watched Hajiko, I cried for most of the second half, having experienced the bond one has with their pet. With Kepanem, I come from such a privileged position, everything that happens in the film is so detached from the bubble I live in. And someone who might recognize it as their own reality might never see this film. So no, this is not a film that makes you cry. It's a film that leaves you desolate. It's a film that breaks your heart for so many children who are living in a reality you can't even imagine in your worst nightmares. And if I think about it, the reality this film depicts may seem detached from your or mine. But it really is not that far detached. Especially if you live in a third world country. It's just we have the privilege to look past it. Just like we look past that homeless child standing by a window on the signal either selling something or begging for something. We've all felt a pang of guilt and have bought that keychain we'd probably never use or have convinced ourselves that there's only so much you can do, you know? Not everybody can be helped. So we ignore them or tell them off. Every once in a while someone comments that these kids, you know, ignore them, they are trained to coax money out of you or somebody or the other indulges them in a conversation asking if they go to school and if not, then why not? Sometimes this conversation ends at a no, no, I don't go to school. At the times, we poke a bit further. Why don't you go to school? Libaki takes you into the mind and life of the child who stands by your window at the traffic signal. What goes on in the head of this child that is standing next to my car window and that is looking at me, not looking at him? How does it feel to be invisible? Our director here, Nadine Libaki, is a Lebanese actress and director who is known for films such as Caramel and Where Do We Go Now? And most prolifically for Capernaum, an internationally very well-received film that won the Cannes Jury Prize in 2018. The style of Capernaum and the effort that has been put into this film. Years, literally years, three years of research and six months of shooting and two years of editing makes it a documentary. But... It's a fictional film, but at the same time, it's also based on the lives of real people and talks about real issues. So it constantly blurs the line between documentary and a fiction feature. And I feel this stylistic choice is perfect for the subject matter it explores. A good practice that I've developed because of watching films in different languages is focusing on the name of the film. Because when you don't speak the language, the first thing you need to know is what the film is called and why. And it really does help to understand or read the film a little bit better. 
just like the lives of the characters that we are following. From the parts of Lebanon where this film is set in to their lives and their homes, everything is chaotic and everything is messed up. But hope can be a miraculous thing and thus the name Kepernim. Zain, our 12-year-old protagonist, lives in the slums of Beirut with his parents and five or six younger siblings. This family does not exist officially, in the sense that they don't have any government documents on their names, or rather, they don't have their names on any of the important documents. So, they are somewhere in the middle of being but not existing. As is the case with a lot of poor families, refugees and illegal immigrants in Lebanon. Given the political turmoil the country has been in, things only become even more difficult for those who are living on the margins. So what happens is Zayn commits a violent crime, gets sent to juvenile home for it and in turn sues his parents for having children. That's a one-sentence summary of the film right there. When Zayn's parents are called to the court on being sued for child neglect, his father declares to everyone that he would have been a better man than all those judging him if he had a chance. But in a paperless life, there are no such chances. This is what the film explores at the core. Morality, is it conditional? And if the conditions are bad, should you bring new lives into it? We start with Zane's medical checkup before he goes to jail. And then the film plays out in flashbacks, telling us what led to the crime he's proven guilty of and the court case that follows. The very first flashback we get is a sequence of Zane and some local kids running around in cramped slums with makeshift guns. These guns catch your attention immediately. They're made out of trash, plastic bottles, wooden pieces, cans, but are still as terrifying as real ones because they're in the hands of children. Welcome to the slums of Beirut. Toys are made out of trash and the games inspired by violence around. And speaking of toys in childhood, the most interesting aspect of this film is how Nadine reminds us what childhood is by showing us what it shouldn't be. This is something we have to talk about in detail, but I'll save that for later in the episode. This film is a part courtroom drama, part neorealist fictional documentary because the plot is woven around a crime in a court case, but the narrative is focused on the characters. All characters are played by non-actors and the performances are so honest, you wouldn't believe these people are not professionals. What helps is that these first-time actors come from similar circumstances their characters are in. So there's an added layer of realism. Zain al-Rafia, the lead actor, is a Syrian refugee who was living in the slums of Beirut when he was cast to play the protagonist. Even the name of the protagonist was changed to Zain once he was cast. He's now settled in Norway with his family, so that gives you some hope. And yes, he'll be seen in Marvel's Eternals next, so his acting career is going well. Similarly, Jordano Shifero, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right. She's an actress who plays Rahel. She was actually living illegally in Lebanon at the time. Zain is the oldest out of all the siblings. Next is Sahar, a year younger to him and the closest. When she gets married off to the man Zayn works for, something Zayn saw coming and had tried the hardest to stop, he even arranges for them to run away. Also, this is the sequence you want to watch out for, from when he plans their escape to when he comes home to his sister being taken away. This is where you'll find all you need to know about these characters, especially Zayn, the mother who must keep her heart walled in so much so that it bleeds cruelty because 
That's what survival asks for. The father who must walk the same path, Sahar, the naive 11-year-old, too timid to fight back. Zain, a 12-year-old child who must act beyond his age. As compassionate and resourceful, angry and desperate as ever. When he tries to stop his parents from sending Sahar away, it's like a physical manifestation of the constant fight he has to put up given his circumstances. It makes you uncomfortable with how helpless this child is. The camera moves a bit unsteady and randomly to give you the impression things are happening in real time, pulls you right into the action and especially at the time of conflict, it's disorienting and makes you uneasy. So his sister gets married off and when that happens, Zane is so upset he runs away. He meets an illegal Ethiopian immigrant, Rahel, who is caught up in an unimaginably difficult reality of her own. She's living illegally in Lebanon, using someone else's identity, and she has a son she can't let anyone know about out of fear of being caught. She must deal with the document forgerer who is trying to get her to sell her son in exchange of a fake ID. She has to manage it all alone, and her life is exhausting to say the least. The situation is such that Zane and Rahel must trust each other. They're little strangers, by the way. But they do. And things get a bit better. Right around the middle of the film, something seemingly trivial but major happens. What? We'll come to it in a bit. So yeah, things get a bit better, only to get a lot worse. And it does, suddenly, and suddenly you are a lot more scared for the characters. Each new circumstance they're in is worse than the previous one and it scares you because they're so vulnerable. There's so much that can go wrong. This is a mess that ultimately leads to Zane doing what he does, so the plot keeps you interested by throwing in snippets from the court as the case proceeds. There's even a red herring. A red herring is a common trope to misguide the audience, to take the attention away from the reveal or make the plot twist more twisty, or just surprise the audience or keep them engaged in the plot. Very commonly utilized in thrillers, detective films, courtroom dramas, think of Brian Singer's The Usual Suspects or M. Night Shyamalan's Sixth Sense. And though this red herring adds to the goodness of the plot, and though the reveal of what Zane does executed through a good red herring adds to the goodness of the plot, what makes this film great is the compassionate telling of why he does it. I must warn you, there will be a few spoilers from this point onward. You know what's the best way to tell how compassionate the gaze in this film is? You can't find any character flawed enough to put blame on. Well, except for, spoiler alert, the guy who gets stabbed, he absolutely had it coming. Even when Zane blames his parents for having children when they were in no position to give them half a decent life, well, that is up to you to decide whether you agree with it or not. And I don't think Labaki wants us to give a consensus on this because Though this is Zane's story, we get insights into the other side of the story as well, mainly through some powerful dialogues. So the mother may get her kids to participate in smuggling drugs to her other kid in jail. Light up a cigarette with the toddler in her lap or the father who drinks and marries off his 11-year-old to a 40-year-old man. In the moments they break down, the film does ask you to feel sorry for them. But really only for that time, their circumstances can't justify everything they put their children through. Should poor people really not have children? This is such a difficult question because on one hand you have these adults 
facing the brunt of systematic oppression and on the other hand you have these children so terribly let down by everything it opens up a void of things that are wrong with our world questions of ethics and morality and inquiries of whose fault is it really and there's no easy answer to this honestly and of course the film is not posing the question of who should and shouldn't have children it's very politically dedicated in taking a stance that no child should have to trade their childhood for survival this seems like a good segue to look into childhood and cinema and how libaki subverts the common tropes let's start with a child adult dichotomy so these two words are essentially understood in opposition to each other who's a child somebody who's not an adult who's an adult somebody who's not a child and in that sense being a child means the absence of everything that makes you an adult nickley in his book called children in society writes and i quote adulthood with all its connotations of stability and completeness has operated as a kind of standard model of a person which stands ready to be used to measure children's incompleteness so the common perception is that a child is naive needs to be protected has a lot to learn about the world is vulnerable and while all of this is true we emphasize so much on it that we begin to see children in a light that does not allow us to take them seriously this on screen either translates in the form of the angel child who represents innocence and purity for example lucy from narnia you have the spoiled brat like dudley dursley from harry potter or you have the mischief the kid from home alone or the occasional creepy one in horror films who again is not creepy inherently is not evil inherently but has evil looking around him or her or them but you can't place zane in any of these tropes because these apply when there is a childhood to begin with zane is a boy who grew up on streets and it's not that he's not innocent or vulnerable he is but at the same time he has to be resourceful and street smart and responsible and protect his siblings you expect children to be resourceful in a way that they come up with creative ways to get to the cookie jar not in a way zane has to be where he has to hide the fact that his younger sister started with her period so that she does not get married off at the age of 11 or you expect children to be responsible in a way that they pick up their toys after playing with them again not the way zane has to be where he has to work so that his family has a roof over their head this way that he carries is too heavy and at times literally there are scenes where we see him struggle carrying stuff too heavy for a child his size there's something grown up about him and it's unsettling and sad and remember when i said earlier there's something important that happens in the middle of the film that something is zane smiling we see him smile for the first time at about 50 minutes into the film There's a lot of blue in the film most prominently the jacket Zane wears throughout and according to color theory the color the blue color signifies melancholy and isolation so probably that's why these are also the feelings that the background score perfectly captures it's heartfelt and sad and fits right in i remember thinking that a film that starts with a violin playing in the background cannot be a happy one but beyond that i didn't think much of it that is still i watched this interview where Khalid Mohsenar the composer of the music and the producer of the film talks about how conflicted he was about it because traditionally scores in films are used as a narrative tool 
to tell you something about the narrative or to make the audience feel what the story demands a manipulation of sorts think of some iconic score or or any score um for example psycho hitchcock's psycho the score is designed to make you feel the intensity and fear and thrill of the scene why it becomes complex in a film so heavy on realism is that should you even tamper with the story of course it's a fictional film but the actors by just being who they are are real life counterparts of their characters in this case would that be taking their voice away representation agency and voice are so complex in themselves so mozna says that the trick was to find the middle ground where you add to the story but not dramatize it unnecessarily and i think that's very interesting because i never thought about the effects or the role of music in in a fictional documentary style film and the last thing that i want to talk about in this segment are the opening and closing shot of the film where we start is a wide angle shot of zain in his underclothes waiting a medical checkup that will determine his age he does not exist on paper nobody knows when he was born so nobody knows exactly how old he is where we end is a close up of zain smiling for an id photograph and this way the film takes a full circle from not knowing his age to officially existing there's a lot zain goes through but there's hope and believe me the last scene is everything even though the whole film makes you kind of lose faith in humanity but it doesn't leave you hopeless you have to watch the film to be reminded what hope feels like an assumption one may have about arab cinema is that given the geopolitical reality of a country like lebanon war would be a prominently explored theme though there have been films talking about that caper name doesn't at least not directly the lead actor is a syrian refugee and another actress is an illegal immigrant but that is as far as caper name touches the subject of war directly Lebaki chooses to go deep into the issues at the very heart of the country inefficient systems intersecting to create unlivable lives for the underprivileged and it is not just caper name lebaki's other films fall in the same category real stories of real people presented to you as beautifully humanized cinema for the next episode we are going to italy given the last two films we have discussed you may think it's bicycle thieves i should tell you it's not but do watch bicycle thieves if you get a chance especially if you enjoy the last two films we talked about in the series we move from the theme of childhood to something much closer to what this podcast is about and that's it i think i have almost given the film away do check out the podcast instagram page at the rate around the world underscore 8mm to find more hints and other cinema related content this page will also lead you to what i am up to that is if you're interested find us on instagram and let's talk films and hey don't forget to treat yourself with a good film this week <laughs>